the letter of Philemon is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote on behalf of a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus had belonged to Philemon, the, the recipient of this letter, as a, uh, as a slave, and he had actually done something to lose a substantial amount of Philemon's money, and then he had run off. And so the letter of Philemon is written to, to um, Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. Paul's writing to him. Apparently, Onesimus became a Christian, and so Paul is writing to Philemon that he would both forgive the, the debt that Philemon had accrued, that, or that Onesimus had accrued, and that he would set him free. That's really his prayer. And uh, we've seen how Paul goes about arguing that. Um, I think almost all those sermons are online now, so if you want to know all the details of that, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to that. But we've been skirting around a really uncomfortable topic, um, and that's because I knew that we were going to deal with it today. And that is wondering um, if, uh, if Philemon supports slavery. It's an important topic to address, and after all, the, the Apostle Paul in the letter of Philemon does not come out and say slavery is evil, so you shouldn't have Phi, uh, Onesimus as a slave. So we're going to address that topic this morning. So I'm going to encourage you to look in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. Uh, we're just going to do verses 15 and 16. And I'm going to warn you up front. Normally I don't do this, but today we are going to be moving all over. We're going to go to Philippians and to 1st and 2nd Corinthians and then to Exodus and then to Leviticus. We're going to be moving a lot. If you are the kind of person who did not grow up doing sword drills, it's okay. I have put all the references I'm going to use this morning and more in the bulletin. So if you just want to sit and listen and take this in, that is okay. There's there's also a number, I, don't, I also don't normally do this, although maybe I should. There's also a number of extra sources that are at the bottom of this page in the bulletin. I would just encourage you, if you want to know more about this topic, know more about apologetics, to look this up. And for you millennials or Gen Zers or whatever comes next, there's even a YouTube video on there. <laughs> and I'm going to encourage you, um, a lot of what I'm saying is uh, I'm going to try to remember to give uh, credit where credit is due, but um, to go and uh, look at those sources uh, after the sermon. After the sermon. Philemon 1, verse 15 and 16. For this is perhaps why he was parted for, from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Father in heaven, we ask one more time that you would fill us with your word. Father, would you help us leaving here with an understanding of your word and the work that we have yet to do. Father, we thank you that no matter what you call us to here on earth, and no matter how difficult it might seem at times, our labor here is not in vain. Amen. Out of curiosity, just show of hands, um, how many of you have ever heard an unbeliever say, or maybe even a believer say, well, everybody knows that the Bible supports slavery? Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, this is a pretty common objection to the Christian faith. Um, this is one, one person in particular who raises this objection regularly is a man named Sam Harris, who's a militant atheist. And, and it's an important question to address. I mean, after all, does the Bible support slavery? Does Philemon in particular support 
slavery is the question we want to ask first this morning. And maybe you're here this morning, I just want to deal with this up front, and maybe you're wondering, why would we even spend time, I mean, we're, we do expositional preaching here, why would we spend time uh, dealing with a topic that's a little bit more what we would consider apologetics? Why would we bother uh, wrestling with that? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First, um, we're told to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And we have not yet addressed this question in the book of Philemon, and so uh, we need to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God, and so we're going to address this question. And just preaching part of the natural way to preaching through the Bible, and it's just the easiest way to do it, I think. Um, a- another reason is, um, as we've just already seen, many of us have heard this objection before, that, that everybody knows that Christianity supports slavery, and therefore they will not even listen to the claims of the Christian faith because they think that the Bible supports Christian slavery. And so we should probably address that. Is that true? Is that something that we need? How, how do we understand that question? And, and finally, I, I want to address this question because maybe in this room there's some of you who are doubting your faith, and maybe you're questioning your faith, and maybe you have questions and doubts and you're afraid to ask them. And so today I want to model for you what it looks like to ask questions of the Bible. The Bible has answers. We're not afraid of questions. So if you're here today and there's something in your heart, you're like, I don't know, doesn't, this, how does the Christians make sense of this topic or that topic? We're not afraid of that. We're not scared of that. The Bible has the answers. And so for all those reasons, I think this is valuable for us to spend this morning doing this. Now, it is true in the letter of Philemon, we've been pretty thorough over the last six weeks. Some might say too thorough. Um, Philemon doesn't come out and say slavery is wrong. It doesn't. It doesn't. You can read through it, and you can see it doesn't come out and say that. And the question is, I think you probably all can guess my answer. Does Philemon support slavery? No. If it doesn't, why doesn't Paul, why isn't Paul more clear? If it doesn't, why isn't Paul more clear? Let me give you two reasons. One, um, in the middle of the last century BC, before Christ was born, there's a Roman emperor, a Roman general named Pompey. And Pompey is named the Great, and if you know Roman history, he's not so great. And uh, Pompey, Pompey um, was part of putting down a slave rebellion led by a man named Spartacus. How many of you have seen that movie? Yeah. And uh, Pom- that's based on a true story. P- Pompey was putting down a slave revolt by a man named uh, Spartacus, and there's all this Roman politics. And the, the end of the story is, at the end of the war, he captured 6,000 slaves who had rebelled. And he took those 6,000 slaves to the main highway that goes in and out of the city of Rome. And he crucified them along the way of the Appian Way as a message to everyone who would enter into the the capital that this is not permissible. And that was not the only time that slaves rebelled in the Roman Empire. And every time they did, it was brutal and it was cruel and it was inhuman how the Romans put that down. So, for the Apostle Paul, writing to a church made of rich and poor, slave and free, man and woman, Jew and Gentile, there needs to be probably a more practical, a more careful, a more subtle way to address this question, a way that doesn't lead to that kind of, um, uh, that kind of result, uh, and of a way that, that can actually get the slave owners on his side. The other reason that I don't think Paul ever comes out and says slavery is wrong, although as we will see today, he certainly believes that, is because a more important goal for Paul is that 
slave and owner would be reconciled. That's a more important goal for Paul than somebody's legal status before Caesar. Paul could honestly, if if that never happens, he doesn't care as long as the unity of the church is kept intact. And we're going to see Paul is very subversive in pushing against slavery in his day. And and yet Paul has a more important goal in mind. We've seen that, that, that slaves would not just be received into the church as those who are free, but those who are brothers and sisters. So Paul doesn't, those are the reasons that Paul doesn't put down slavery. Nevertheless, we're going to see, let me give you some reasons why, why the Apostle Paul can't be seen to be supporting slavery and, and how he goes about handling slavery in Philemon. The, the first thing that we need to see is he calls Jesus Christ Lord. It's one of the most subversive things that you can do to a slave owner to say that you are to a slave owner, if you say to that person, you yourself are a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul does that in Philemon 1, verse 3. He does that again in verse 16, as we've said. He does that again in verse uh, verse 25, that Christ is Lord, and therefore we're all slaves of Christ. That, that because Christ is Lord, He's our master, He's our king, He rules over us, and therefore all of us are slaves of Christ. And yet, nevertheless, we can see here that Paul references the saving work of Christ. That he who was Lord, he who was master, he who was king, gave up his life on the cross. That he died the death a sinner should have died. He says that in, in verse in verse uh, seven, he, or verse six, he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That's a reference to the gospel, the good news of how Christ died in the place of sinners. And so the message is, if Christ, who is Lord and Master, who is King over all things, gave up his status over others so that he might save them, shouldn't those who are his followers, his disciples... His people do the same. Shouldn't they give up their relationship of authority, their relationship of power to deliver those who are in bondage? That's a very subversive way to deal with this issue. We also see in verse 16 um, that Paul does a number of things that are also really subtle. He He tells Philemon to receive Onesimus back no longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. So he says that the status of slave does not fit, it does not accord, it doesn't align, it doesn't make sense of the believer's true status in Christ. That it's, it's not accurate. So you can't think of him as a slave anymore because now he is free. Now he's in Christ. Now he's liberated. Now he's delivered. Now he is free. We also see here that Paul refers to Onesimus with the same language he referred to Philemon. He calls Onesimus a beloved brother, which is exactly the same words that he used to refer to Philemon. In ver- in, in, starting in verse 1, he says to Philemon, our beloved fellow work. He calls him brother a number of times, including in verse 7. And Paul is trying to get Philemon to see that he is not more human, he's not more of a Christian than Onesimus, that they both have the same status in Christ. You'll also notice that he calls him his brother. That's significant because the passage we read in Leviticus 25, that the Israelites were told that they had to redeem their brothers, their kinsmen, 
out of slavery if they were in slavery. If you had a, a cousin or a brother who was enslaved because of his stupidity, I have brothers. Won't tell you which ones would be enslaved, but it was your obligation to buy that person out of slavery. And so by calling him brother, by calling him brother, there's this implicit, you have an obligation to make sure your brother is free. You, you will also notice, you will also notice that if Philemon sets Onesimus free because he's now a Christian, it would be inconsistent for Philemon to have other slaves who are Christians, right? If Philemon sets Onesimus free, all the other slaves in his household are going to say, what about us? What, what about me? I'm as much of a Christian as Onesimus is. And Paul just lets that sit. He just kind of drops that bond, bomb and lets it, lets it, fit, lets it uh, simmer in the life of Philemon. The, the reality is those who have been changed and transformed by the gospel of Christ will go out and change culture. If you and I have been put our faith in Jesus, if we've been united to Christ, if we're in Him, if we're changed, if we're re- reconciled, if we're redeemed, we can no longer treat culture the same way. It's well, The way that we interact with others is just going to change. And so the, the tactic that the Bible always uses to address the changing of culture is always by the changing of lives. It's always by seeing those who are sinners be saved and that they can no longer relate to the world the same way they used to, but now they must change. And Paul is pushing that on Philemon. Now, maybe you're here and you think, well, wait a minute. That's just the letter of Philemon. Isn't that inconsistent to what Paul says elsewhere? And maybe you've heard that say, well, Paul's, he's all over the place and he's, you know, maybe he doesn't support slavery in Philemon, but doesn't he do that elsewhere? Well, no. And 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul actually says enslaving people, uh, those who are enslavers of uh, other people, have no place in the kingdom of God. But to really get at the root of Paul's thinking, you have to see what he says in Philippians. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, just listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage is what Tom, the historian Tom Holland um, calls the depth charge underneath the institution of slavery that Paul drops. It's this idea that, that Christ is Lord. And we see Paul doing the exact same thing here that he does in Philemon. That Christ is Lord over all. That he has conquered the grave. That he's been exalted to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That now he rules over all things. He is our King. He's our Lord. And if he humbled himself to the point of himself becoming a servant. so that, that If he gave up status and authority and power shouldn't his people do the same? 
If Christ gave up his freedom to set people free, shouldn't those who are owners give up their authority to set slaves free? It's a powerful logic. You cannot read that and think, oh yeah, Paul's okay with slavery. If you let that work its way out into the, 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 the practical relationships of slave and owner, there's no way you can read that and think, yeah, Paul is okay with slavery. This sacrilege, it, it turns it on its head that those who are, and it's the logic of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that those who are highest are the humblest. And those who have the most power are those who give it up. And those who, those who are the most in charge are those who are the servant of all. It turns this on its head. And so therefore, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to double speak if you want to. He's going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he's going to tell slaves this. He says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Do you, re- do you realize that? That Paul there is just being so subversive of the institution of slavery. Saying, were you a slave when you became a Christian? Who cares what Caesar says? You're free in Christ. He says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. See how he turns it? If you're a slave, you're actually free in Christ. But if you are a slave owner, you're actually a slave in Christ. It turns it on its head. Likewise, he who was free when, a, when called is a bondservant in Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul is, you see, he's subverting this whole human institution of slavery. And he's saying, don't be too concerned about it if you belong to another, because ultimately you belong to Jesus. You're not your own. And if you are a freeman, don't take pride in the fact that you're free under the law because you actually belong to Christ. You actually belong to him. You actually serve him. And therefore, if you're a slave, seek your freedom. That's a good thing to do. But if you can't, don't. He does, he, you see how Paul is taking the teeth out of slavery. He's removing the fangs out of it. He is subverting it, removing it of all of its power and injustice. So no, Paul does not support slavery. He doesn't support it in any of his letters. He takes this, every time he addresses this topic, he takes the exact same tack. And even in 1 Timothy, he's harsher against slaves than anywhere else. No, Paul does not, uh, does not entertain slavery. Now, and if you go through the letters uh, to the letter of 1 Peter, Peter has almost exactly the same thing to say. In fact, Peter in some ways goes into more detail. But maybe you think, well, okay, Paul's an outlier. Everybody else knows that the, the rest of the Bible supports slavery. So maybe Paul doesn't, but of course the rest of the Bible does. But I would just encourage you to examine that assumption. There's, there's two places in the Old Testament law that really handle slavery. There's two places in the Old Testament law that really handle slavery. There's Exodus 21, and there is um, Leviticus 25. Uh, so Exodus 21 and Leviticus 25. 
Now, Exodus 21 is applying the Ten Commandments to the institution of slavery. That's what's happening in Exodus 21 and those, all those laws that follow the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. It's just applying the Ten Commandments to various situations. It's called casuistry. And in particular, it spends more time addressing slavery than just about any other topic in this section of the book of Exodus. Now, there's a lot here, so I'm, I'm can't, I just don't have the time um, to go into all the details, and it might not be helpful because it might kind of lose the forest for the trees, but here's what we can see in the book of Exodus, okay? Um, the book of Exodus does not support slavery like we would think of. The kind of slavery that the book of Exodus supports would be what we might call today indentured servitude. So in other words, if somebody was in debt, they would sell themselves to pay off that debt. It was voluntary. You couldn't be forced to go into indentured servitude. That indentured servitude had a time stamp. There's a limit. It expires every seven years. We'll talk more about that the year of Jubilee. So it's really just, if anything, it's more of a bad work contract than anything else. That's what he's saying. That's, and you have to understand, I mean, maybe to you that sounds, oh, I can't believe they, they would even say that. That was so inconsistent with all the cultures surrounding Israel at the time. That was so out of place in the ancient world that, that slaves would, that slavery would be limited and somebody would have to agree to it. That just didn't make any sense. It's much more, uh, it was so revolutionary. I mean, we look back on it from our perspective. We don't see just how incredibly limited this, any allowance for slavery is in the Bible at all. And nevertheless, what we see in the, in the book of Exodus are a number of rules even on top of that. So there's rules that prohibit the physical abuse of slaves. There's rules that prohibit the killing of slaves. There's rules that prohibit sex trafficking of slaves. Things that are unheard of in the culture surrounding Israel of the time. It, there's, there's rules that would even say in verse 16, Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So you can't go out and force somebody to be a slave. You can't just go kidnap somebody to be a slave. You can't just go raid an enemy territory and take somebody as a slave. That, that, that would be violating what the Bible would teach about slavery. Okay, so maybe you think, well, okay, well, what about Leviticus 35? Because I know I've heard somebody say somewhere uh, that Leviticus 35 permits slavery. Well, not like you think of. Leviticus 35 gives instruction... Uh, or 25, I'm sorry, gives instruction for the, the year of Jubilee, the Sabbath year. And, and there we're told that everyone who's a slave among the people of Israel, every seven years is to be set free. They're to be released. So what, what this is saying is it's saying just as, uh, it's using this idea of just as you came out of the land of Egypt, just as you were set free and from your bondage and your chains, so slaves should be set free. That it's really, it's, it's, it's actually putting a time limit on, on slavery. We've already said that if you had a kin, kinsman, a cousin or a brother or somebody who you knew who sold themselves into slavery, you are now under obligation to seek their freedom. You are now under obligation to buy that person out of slavery. The only, the only real allowances for slavery that are allowed here are for those who are not Jews and even those Gentiles who are not 
on the same seven-year of Jubilee calendar, so to speak, even those people are, are still prohibited from being beaten and killed and trafficked and all the other things. They're just not the same timestamp. Maybe you think, well, that's so mean. Why don't, why don't they just do the timestamp for everybody? Well, they don't because the timestamp, the seven-year of Jubilee that was for those who are Israelite slaves was a religious celebration. It was an act of faith. Just think about that. If they would have set the Gentile slaves free the same on the seven, every seven years, they would have been sort of forcing them to, to obey a faith which they didn't share. But those, those people who were slaves still had the opportunity to convert, to become a follower of Yahweh, in which case they would be set free every seven years. There's, no, there's nothing that prohibits slaves from being converted. Here is, and maybe this is just because I was raised as a libertarian, here is how, I, like if you read this, it just sounds to me, the prohibitions surrounding slavery in the Old Testament are so burdensome and cumbersome that they make it more of a pain to possess slaves than to not. It's legislating the institution to death. And that's how the Bible in the Old Testament is pushing slavery out. Because those who've been delivered by the hand of God from slavery in the land of Egypt ought not keep slaves themselves. Those who've been transformed and changed by the, the gospel should change and transform their culture. So, no, the Bible doesn't support slavery. The Bible doesn't support slavery, it, but it also cares more about the reconciliation of brothers than about someone's legal status before the law. That, that it's not enough for somebody to be free they must be welcomed into the covenant community. You understand that, that for the Bible, your legal status for 40 or 50 years on this planet is not nearly as important as your inclusion in the covenant people of God for eternity. That's a far more important, far more important um, measure. Now, maybe you will say, well, okay, fine, whatever. The Bible says you don't support slavery. But everybody knows Christians have supported slavery. Well, let's just examine that claim because actually throughout church history, there are far more Christians that have not supported slavery than that have. In the earliest church, in the early church before the church became, um, became exiles or, or became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, uh, the church actually did not support slavery. Church actually argued against slavery. In fact, the early churches actually raised up money to buy slaves so that they could set them free. They would have these fundraisers so they could set them free, including all of these other subversive things that we've talked about. Do you realize how revolutionary it was for the church to invite slave and master to the same communion table? It was so subversive, and it turned Roman society on its head. And so the, the church in the early days, before it got any power in culture, was fighting against slavery. When the church did ascend to power, when, when the church gained the upper hand in the Roman Empire, um, when the church did become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, we see that they used that newfound influence to fight against slavery. So John Chrysostom 
who's probably the most influential preacher who has ever lived. And he was the personal chaplain to one of the emperors. He's probably, he's probably the most influential preacher who's ever lived. He encouraged his church, the rich people in his church, to buy slaves, teach them a trade, and set them free. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. If you look at people like Gregory of Nyssa, who was one, who's an important uh, theologian for how we think about the Trinity, he, was, he wrote a whole treatise condemning slavery, which was the do- dominant uh, cultural institution. And even after the Roman Empire fell, even after there was this collapse of the city of Rome, and as the barbarian tribes became civilized and they became Christianized, then slavery started to become outlawed in those groups. So I love the story of Clovis, Clovis, the second king of Franks. He married one of his slaves named Batilda, and Batilda led an abolition campaign in their territory. Christians have always rejected slavery, and they've always worked for the abolition of slavery. Wherever the church of Christ has gone, slavery has fled. You you see that in the Roman uh, Empire. You see that in the Middle Ages. As the church spreads to Northern Europe, slavery becomes less and less practiced, so that by the time of the Reformation, slavery was basically eradicated on the continent of Europe. Now, I say this too, if we're going to say all that, we have to be honest about the shortcomings and failures of Christians, particularly leading up to the uh, discovery of the new world. Now, as the discovery of the new world was on the horizon, there were raiders primarily from the Muslim world who would raid the shores of Europe and they took captive about one million Europeans and sold them into slavery, European Christians, and sold them into slavery in the Muslim world trade world leading up to this in about the century before the reformation um they 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 raided the shores of europe and they took them captive and they they sold them into slavery in the muslim world well when the european christians discovered the new world and they were trying to use it to to for all of its obvious harvesting and they were trying to build these plantations they tried to do the biblical system of indentured servitude and as it turns out, they found out exactly what we said, which is that indentured, the way the Bible sets up slavery in the Old Testament is death by a thousand cuts. It doesn't work. It's not supposed to work. It's supposed to make slavery burdensome and cumbersome. And that system didn't work for the plantation owners. And so they turned back to those cultures that didn't know Christ, primarily from Muslim cultures, not only from Muslim cultures, though, that slavery was still being practiced, and they adopted that. And to our shame... Got to be honest about that. Christians re-adopted slavery from, from a culture which had not yet eradicated it. So for 1,500 years approximately, Christians had basically abolished slavery wherever they went. So after 1,500 years, Christians in the New World took advantage of the situation and they re-adopted slavery. Just want you to understand that the, for the 1,500 years, the, the normal orthodoxy of the Christian church was the outlawing of slavery and the abolition of slavery. And when it was readopted, it was done without the approval of the religious authorities. It, the religious authorities only gave its approval after it became too late to stop. The Pope actually, actually strongly, strongly condemned the practice of slavery in the New World. And yeah. Now, almost as quickly as slavery was readopted, 
almost as quickly as slavery was readopted, Christians started pushing back against it because they read their Bibles. And Christians in, in the British Empire in particular, but not only in the British Empire, worked tirelessly for decades to abolish slavery. The most well-known one is William Wilberforce, who entered British Parliament at age 21 and for 53 years fought the fight against slavery. That's longer than most of you have been alive. For 53 years, he fought the uphill battle against slavery, day and night, making speeches in Parliament and getting very little traction until he was almost on his deathbed. He got news that Parliament had voted to buy back and set free all the slaves in Britain. It's amazing. And, and, and as, the Roman, as the British Empire abolished slavery, then the British Empire policing this wave stopped, started pressuring other countries to drop the practice of slavery. And it was through the hard work of Christians in the British Empire that, that, that slavery became to be seen as a pariah activity, that it became to be seen as something condemned. And Britain led the way as the rest of Europe started to slowly follow suit. In America, it was one of the factors of the beginnings of starting to uh, push back against slavery it was actually Congregationalists in New England. And, and there would be these, uh, these people who would... Join, uh, bring their slaves to church, and their slaves would become Christians, and they would get baptized, and then they would want to become members. <laughs> church membership's great. They would want to become members, and they'd be received into membership because someone's been baptized, and they've put their faith in Christ. You can't, well, turn them away from the table, and, they, they, and, and so they adopted them into membership. And we see the same story that we see in the Roman Empire, that slavery started to get pushed out. And even in the United States, it was, it was Christians who led the charge for the abolition of slavery. It was men like Solomon Chase, who was the Secretary of the Treasury for Abraham Lincoln, who, who fought the good fight and who even pushed Abraham Lincoln to take a stronger stance against slavery. Do you understand that the, the institution that has led the way and paved the way fighting against the institution of slavery has always been the church? It's always been Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching, Bible-thumping Christians that have led the way for the abolition of slavery. If the church had never existed, slavery would still be practiced across the world. And now, even in our country, as we are dealing with the ongoing effects of slavery, we're trying to fight and kind of rehash some of these old battles. If you listen to the voices who are Christian and the voices who are not, What you will find for the voices who are not Christian is a zero-sum game of I'm right, you're wrong. But if you listen to the Christians, who I don't always think all of them are always totally 100% correct, nevertheless, the, the emphasis is always on reconciliation and restoration. Because more important than someone's legal standing is reconciliation between brothers and restoration between brothers. And that's the only way that you can actually fight against injustice. As we are transformed and changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we transform and change culture. 
That's the only way that the church has ever been able to push back so severely and so strongly and so harshly against the institution of slavery is always by preaching the gospel and letting the gospel's implications work its way out. That's Paul's strategy in Philemon. That's his strategy in all the rest of his letters. That's the strategy of the Bible. And that has always been the church's strategy. As we are changed by the gospel, we change culture. So let me help us apply this to to us today, because this is extremely relevant for us. The only hope, the only hope for fighting against injustice in our world is the gospel of Christ. The only hope to see those who are far brought near is the gospel of reconciling those who once were enemies, of breaking down the wall of hostility. That is the only hope for for dealing with injustice in our world. I have lived in a number of places that there is a lot of hate and there's a lot of there's a, a lot of division, there's a lot of discrimination. I've lived in places like that and I can tell you the only ones who are really crossing the aisle, the only ones who are really working to be reconciled, the only ones who are really fighting injustice are the Christians. The, the only hope for the injustice and the brokenness in our world is the gospel of Christ. Number two. If you are holding back from embracing in the church, embracing the church, you are holding back and embracing from the only institution that has ever actually abolished slavery. To, to fail to engage with the people of God is to fail to engage in God's redemptive work across the world. It's that as we are changed and as we join and as we're brought together, we can no longer look at those who once were below us as that anymore because the humblest are the highest in the economy of the kingdom. Because those who, are the, the, those, who are, those who have the most authority are those who give it up for the sake of the gospel. It, to cut yourself off from the church is to cut yourself off from the only, the only true hope for injustice in this world. Number three, there is still work to do on this front. There is still work to do on this front. There are now more numerically speaking, I don't know about proportionally speaking, but numerically, there are more slaves now than there have ever been. And that's officially. There there are still countries and parts of the world where slavery is practiced. There, There are some countries where people will migrate to the United States from that country and they will bring along their slaves. There's a great article in the Atlantic by a man whose family migrated from the Philippines who who's ha- brought their family servant with them. There's still work to be done. There's still, uh, today in our world and Western societies, the dominant, form of, uh, the dominant form that slavery takes is sex trafficking. There's still work to be done on this front. This is not a finished battle. This is not time for the church to, put, to throw down the towel. There's still work to be done. And so we do that work by planting churches and by preaching the gospel. The work to be done, the work to fight against injustice, the, the work to push back against darkness in the world is done by planting churches and preaching the gospel. And church, you are actively engaged in that work because you want to know one of the places where slavery is actually growing is India, where we are supporting a church planting movement through good churches we just talked about. 
You are actually a part of that movement to push back against, against the injustice in this world. You and I, as, as we are faithfully serving the Lord here in Holden, Maine, we, we are seeing the gospel go forth, and we're seeing the same work when it comes to slavery that has always been done. Lives be changed and transformed by the gospel. And as maybe as you think, maybe as you think about all the brokenness and all those places that are so far away, and you just think it's so hopeless. And what can we do here to fight against slavery? What can we do here to fight against injustice? Here's what you need to know. God is the one who takes ultimate responsibility. There will come a day where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will come a day where the tree will be planted for the healing of the nations. There will come a day when all that is wrong will be made right and everything sad will become untrue. So Christians, your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have called us to be a light to this world, to spread the gospel, to see lives changed and lives transformed. God, we thank you for the good heritage that we have as Christians. Father, we are not hiding from anything. We're not running from anything. We know that there are many who have used the Bible to support this institution. And yet, Father, we praise you that there are far more Christians throughout history who have pushed back against the darkness in this way. So, Father, I pray for us now that you give us more and more opportunities to see the gospel go forth in our lives, to see those who are broken be healed, to see those who are far be brought near, to even as we maybe in our hearts have the tendency to view ourselves as better than somebody else, to be confronted by that tendency in our own heart and convicted and to repent of that. And Father, we praise you that as your work always has, you will continue to fight against injustice. We thank you that you give us the calling to be part of that. So Father, I pray for us now that you would help us to be confident that our labor is not in vain, and that there will come a day where all that is broken will be restored. In the name of your Son and by your Spirit, amen.